The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're talking about the future of artificial intelligence with four expert guests. Will AI bring us utopia? Will it kill us all? Are there perhaps less extreme answers to this question? Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell. For today's panel, I am thrilled to be joined by four experts in some very diverse fields. First off, I have Kirsten Dotenhan, and she's a professor of artificial intelligence in the School of Computer Science at the University of Hertfordshire in the UK. Welcome, Kirsten. Thank you. And next, we're joined by Raymond Mooney, professor of computer science at the University of Texas at Austin and director of the UT Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. Good to have you here, Raymond. Yeah, it's good to be with you. And I am also pleased to have Despina Kakudaki, Associate Professor and Director in the Humanities Lab in the Department of Literature at the College of Arts and Sciences at American University. She's the author of Anatomy of a Robot. Literature, Cinema, and the Cultural Work of Artificial People. Hello, Despina. Good to be here. And rounding off the group is Rose Eveleth, a producer, designer, and writer based in Brooklyn, who switched from studying krill as a scientist to studying scientists who study krill as a journalist. She's the host and producer of the podcast Meanwhile in the Future and a columnist for BBC Future. Welcome back, Rose. Thanks for having me. Okay, from my very informal survey on people's perspective, on artificial intelligence, I have managed to separate the opinions into three categories. Uh, one, AI is super cool and anyone who doesn't think so is anti-progress. Uh, two, AI is going to eventually destroy us all. And three, AI is super cool but may potentially damage us and our way of life if we aren't vigilant about ensuring that it doesn't. So does that pretty much cover it, do you think? I think that's right. So the catalyst for this panel is uh, that a number of high-profile people have recently publicly expressed uh, that last position, the uh, not exactly terrified but concerned position um, about the future of, of uh, artificial intelligence. And I'm thinking specifically of Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk. So when people like that start to get worried, that should give the rest of us pause, shouldn't it? Maybe. <laughs> you know, certainly they're technology people, but they're certainly not direct work in artificial intelligence. So you know, I respect them as you know scientists and technologists, but they're not really experts in the field of artificial intelligence. So I mean, I, I, I share their, in, their, their concerns in some sense, but I think probably this whole debate's been a little bit overblown that, that uh, I think anyone in AI wants their technology they develop to be a, a beneficial to mankind and not any sort of a threat. And it's mainly been the you know, popular media and movies and, and, and science fiction that has sort of portrayed AI as this sort of dangerous thing. And I think there's, you know, we always have to keep that in the back of our mind. But I, you know, as a, a person who's worked in AI for 30 years, I'm not overly concerned uh, about about those issues. I think it's always something to keep in mind, but I think the recent hype has, has been a little uh, 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 over the top. I also think that it's, it's worth maybe um, 
pausing whenever these conversations come up because people use the word AI and artificial intelligence to mean a whole lot of things. And, and the definition is, is, is not really agreed upon. And I think people are talking about all sorts of different things when they talk about this. And I'm sure that this is something that uh, Ray and, and Kirsten have to deal with all the time is that people hear AI and they think, you know, the singularity, they think robots like rising up and being intelligent as, as intelligent or more intelligent than humans. And like, that's not really the context in which most people who work on AI actually engage with this kind of stuff. And I think that that's part of the issue too. We hear AI and we think like, you know, human robots. Uh, and that's, there's a tiny part of the field and isn't like, we're very far away from that still. Um, I'm sure they can talk more about like the definitional stuff, but I feel like for me, like that's when I hear people getting really scared of AI. And then I ask them like, well, what, what is it? What is AI? Like, what does that mean? It's hard for them to define it. Kirsten, would you agree with that? Um, yes, I mean, I do agree with the previous speakers. There's, there's just a lot of hype. And the fact that um, there are numerous really interesting science fiction movies and books around to tell us the story of the robots that take over the world, um, that doesn't help. That doesn't help somebody who is on a, on a daily basis working in AI. I think sometimes there is this myth that AI or AI systems, that these are systems that have their or that develop their own goals that they suddenly become um, uh, or they suddenly develop to a level where they do things on their own agenda. And for me, there is, there is no scientific evidence to suggest that you will have uh, robots, even if they might, do, might be very clever, do lots of things, for example, help people in lots of ways in many application areas, that they suddenly decide, oh, we were all wrong, we have to not take over the world. There's absolutely, as far as I'm concerned, no scientific evidence to suggest that. We have have um, a very long tradition of all of these figures being fictional uh, when it, they were ab absolutely not possible in reality. And that actually is one of the real questions today, that the fiction and the science fiction have a very long-standing presence in culture with completely their own independent patterns that have not had anything to do with scientific reality or scientific possibility. Um, and so it, you see an activation there of something that's very familiar to people, which is the threat of the animate object or the threat of the independent robot or the threat of the AI system that takes over the world. And some of these science fiction stories are from the 20s, the 30s, the 40s. Um, and in terms of Gothic uh, precursors, the 19th century and even earlier. Um, and so the, 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 there's something about the background of that cultural association that is very hard to, to tame in contemporary culture. The other thing, however, which is kind of an interesting complication, is that sometimes scientists themselves use that Gothic tradition in order to get attention to their projects. It's very hard for somebody to be, let's say, in the cover in the New York Times by saying, your map uh, system on your cell phone will recognize your destinations a little better. It's very easy for them to say your map system is intelligent and it will guess what you want or it will satisfy your desires. So that animating language, I think... Uh, it contributes both to the confusion, but also is still very operative when we're talking about how people advertise these projects. Ray, would you agree with that? Yeah, no, I think I agree with the other speakers. I think sometimes people are just too anthropomorphic about their view of intelligence because, it, you know, human intelligence is the only real intelligence that we have any experience with. And so I think and, and they tend to think that, oh, if something's intelligent, then it is going to make its own goals and it's going to have this biological drive to sort of multiply and take over. And, you know, computers were not evolved. They're designed by human beings and they have certain goals that, that we have given them and they're not designed by evolution to all the drive.
drives that a biological intelligence system is. And so I think people are sort of colored by their view of it having to be like humans because that's the only intelligence they know. But I think AI is going to be a very different type of intelligence. It isn't necessarily going to have the same goals and drives as, as people do. Well, and it's not just the, the media that's contributing to this. I guess the it's the entertainment media as well. We've seen a, a, a sort of an upsurge in films that have come out over the last few few years that have dealt with uh, various aspects of artificial artificial intelligence. So why do you think that is exactly? What's so, what's so fascinating about AI right now? Well, something that I noticed uh, and I've been speaking about uh, recently with a couple of people is that in uh, recent, recent movies, whether you had actual robots or whether you had just, you know, a smart voice, they always, these AI systems are always being portrayed as um, wonderful, attractive young females. <laughs> Interesting. As potential, as potential love object or sexual object, which I find is a narrative that is, at least for me, getting a little bit boring because there's <laughs> a lot of potential in AI systems and robots, what they could do in the future, what role they could have in society. But sometimes the conversation just seems to be stuck into, you know, love between robots and people, uh, men in particular. And, I, you know, I just sometimes um, wish that we could discuss a more interesting narrative on different ways in how robots could contribute to society. I agree completely. I think that the, the power of these stereotypes is just so intense and people fall back into these ancient patterns of the Pygmalion story of the scientist or artist who develops the ideal woman that is his uh, perfect beloved. And because she is made by him, she is utterly under his control. It is thousands of years old, this pattern, and somehow we cannot shake it off. We still fall back into these really very old stereotypes. But I agree, I would love to see robot stories that have the robots do something else that would be surprising to me, that would be a completely different range of action. And the power of science fiction is that it can invent these things that have alien modes of being. And I would love to see robots that express that alien mode of being. There was a moment in her that actually was really nice about that, where at some point this artificial uh, uh, kind of entity um, that we hear through this very husky, sexy voice from Scarlett Johansson, at some point she says, you know, I have a lot, a million things that I'm doing because actually, you know, I can do all of this other stuff. I'm not embodied in one particular body. I don't have to just have one purpose and one goal. And so suddenly you get the sense that this, this artificial intelligence is very multiple and very vast and she doesn't have the scale at all of human life, which is really wonderful to see even in a story that has so many stereotypical elements if you if you like that part of her there's a great book called ancillary justice uh, by Anne lucky that really explores that element of a computer being able to be multiple beings at once and multiple places at once and, and thinking of all these things and i highly recommend that book i, I thought it was really great um, it's a great book i completely agree and the idea that that's exactly what i'm talking about how can we use these sometimes stereotypical storylines to create completely new types of experience for for me, it was very interesting to think about one intelligence that could be in thousands of places at the same time. And how do you navigate that? That's a great exercise in expanding my sense of the world. Another reason, or at least from my perspective, that I think we're seeing a lot of these movies and, and stories about, you know, the rise of AI as this sort of entity that is evil or, evil or to be worried about. 
um, is that there's a lot of sort of scary things on the planet right now. And humans are kind of constantly looking for a reason to sort of band together against a common enemy. And so this is why like, you know, aliens coming to destroy us and we all come together and fight together because I think we're seeing, you know, more and more of these horrible things happening in the world. And like, there's something, there's this desire for kind of a, a unified human cause. So for there to be that, you need a non-human thing. Uh, and that non-human thing is sometimes aliens, but recently it's kind of been these computers. Um, I think also, and, and Ray sort of mentioned this, which is that the only sort of really highly developed intelligence that we're familiar with is our own. And I think that we have this idea as humans that we are so dominant on this planet and that the only real threat that we can imagine to ourselves is something that we've created because nothing else seems to be able to threaten us. So, you know, sometimes that's a virus that we've created. Sometimes it's a machine that we've created and these robots. But I think that part of the reason that we see these these AI narratives is because we see, we look around the world and we see that like humans have dominated everything else on the planet. We're destroying everything else on the planet. So the only thing that could destroy us is something that we've created. And so I think that's where a lot of those AI narratives come from as well. So yeah, I think the fictional work has had a lot of impetus on this, but I think there is some underlying concern. I think that's realistic that there has been a lot of recent progress in in AI, and it is starting to impact employment in various ways. So I like this book, The Second Machine Age, by a group from MIT that talks about some of these things. And there, you know, and driverless cars is sort of the thing that's been on a lot of the news lately that that I do think is going to change. There's a lot of people that make their living off of you know driving vehicles, whether it's taxi drivers or, 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 or truck drivers, and and AI is starting to have an impact on employment. And I think that is a legitimate issue that we need to be concerned about. And I think at least like Elon Musk, I think he, you know he's recently been working on. Driving driverless cars for Tesla. I mean, I think that's some of the things that's driving his some of his concerns, which I think are, are reasonable, but I think we need to reorganize society so maybe we're not all working so much and that we can all more enjoy interesting things to do. The standard thing that robotics people talk about is they want to build robots that replace jobs that are dull, dangerous, and, and dirty. And, you know, I think that's what most technology people, we're not, you know, we want people to be able to focus their lives on more interesting and, and meaningful work and let the robots do the, the drudgery. Yeah, one thing I want to add to, to that uh, is that, you know, I'm actually totally pro technologists, like taking a step back and saying like, hey, maybe we should think about this a little bit, right? Like, I think that that's a good instinct. And I think that there's a big gap between that and saying like, oh my God, robots are going to take over and destroy us all, right? Like there's there's a pretty large span of, of things that need to happen between those two. And I think that, you know, one of the things that, um, that you actually sent out before we talked is this open letter from the Future of Life Institute. And their point is not, you know, these robots are going to become Terminators and come to destroy us. It's, we should think about this. This is a really powerful technology. This is a really important technology. And we should be very, careful and considerate with the way that we think about it. And I, I want to encourage that in tech. I feel like often that's not actually happening as much as it could. So in some ways, like Ray said, like it is good to think about certain things. It is good to look around and say, okay, what is the impact that my technology is going to have on people and how is that going to change things? Um, I just think that saying that and saying, you know, AI is going to, you know, come up and, and all the robots are going to rise up and destroy us is, is sort of two different things. And they get lumped together often as like sort of alarmist stuff. So are those conversations happening now? Those of you who actually work in the field? Well, yeah. So, I mean, I, I was uh, here, actually the AAAI, the main national AI conference in North America was held here in Austin in January. And they had this debate on should uh, robots have autonomous capability to kill people in war, right? These drones and should they be able to, to decide themselves, you 
know, to fire rather than always in it being under human control. And they had one technology person, a roboticist at Georgia Tech, who argued that maybe robots could make wiser decisions about the use of weapons. And uh, another person who was was uh, thought that, you know, robots should never be given the the, the right to, to decide on whether to kill somebody or not. And so and it was an interesting debate. And I think people had some interesting discussions uh, about it. And, and uh, I think obviously people who work in the field do care about it. they want to make sure that their work that they're doing is beneficial and where, you know, that it's not threatening the future of humankind. But I don't think most AI people, A, don't think the technology is capable enough at this point to be such a threat and that, you know, we do have pretty good control on, on what we're doing and the technologists really do care about these issues. I completely agree. Um, there's also in other areas, not only military, for example, one area where a lot of research projects worldwide work on is to provide support for elderly people. So having robots or other um, computer systems helping people to stay independently in their homes for longer. And again, you have uh, discussions, you have panels, you have uh, researchers actively involved in these um these are more ethical issues, and uh, yes, I mean, I would, I would say these discussions are certainly d- d- taking place, and you know, I think, I think really, it's, it's, it's. I just, I just wish not only AI researchers, but also other people that we would, we would take ownership of these narratives of AI and robots and where we want it to go and what it, what it can become, but to be grounded in a more realistic account of what is what is actually happening. Because as as um as it was said previously, there are there are lots of horrible things going on at the moment, uh, without robots. In a certain sense I'm not so much worried about o- autonomous killing machines. I'm more worried about about people wanting to kill. So I think I think we need really realistic discussion. I mean, AI has been studied now for, you know, more than 50 years. I mean, we can now make a good uh, assessment of what is possible, what may be possible in the next 10, 20, 30 years. And um, I think based on such discussion, we can maybe, you know, paint narratives that are a little bit more interesting and also a little bit more grounded in reality. This is Science for the People, and we're talking about artificial intelligence with Raymond Mooney, director of an artificial intelligence laboratory, author Despina Kakadaki, Kirsten Dotenhan, professor of artificial intelligence, and journalist Rose Eveleth. And uh, that's exactly where I want to go, folks. Uh, the idea of what is realistic. I think before we dig into whether the concerns about the future of AI are valid, let's talk about where we are right now. So what is the current state of AI research? What are we doing? AI goes back to the 1950s and when people already started to identify aspects of human-level intelligence that they thought was interesting, such as vision, such as natural language understanding, um, later then also robotics uh, in terms of navigation, in terms of having autonomous systems, autonomous decision-making, theory improving, uh, machine learning. I mean, these are all still really, really big topics. A lot of progress has been made. We do have a lot of AI in our daily lives, uh, in our smartphones, in, you know, any kind of you know, computer systems that are around us. So a lot of progress has been has been made, and um, these systems are now also coming together more and more into autonomous systems, such as the driverless car that has been mentioned, or autonomous robots that might help you know maybe people in their in their homes or in hospitals or in offices. And so things are. You know, I mean, I am I'm pretty optimistic about the progress that has been made and how it is coming together, and the many application areas that it opens up, which have not necessarily been foreseen uh, 60 years ago. Yeah, so I think AI has been going on for about 50 years now, and we've made a lot of progress. I think a lot of people like to see big jumps and sort of breakthroughs, but 
I think really AI intelligence is a really hard thing to try to automate, and we've been making slow progress over the past 50 years. And people started working, say, on speech recognition back in the 60s, and it wasn't that good. And we, every year, you know, the ability to understand human speech got a little bit better, and now it's to the point that you can actually talk to Siri on the phone or you know, use various systems on the phone that do speech recognition. And now it's actually working well enough, but there's not like there's been a breakthrough. It's like the progress has been steady and I continue, I expect it to continue to be steady and enable more and more applications as we go on. But I, I don't think AI is a field where there's sort of these sudden breakthroughs where you know, something magical happens. It's a, it's a very slow, steady process. I mean, and if you wanted to think about what happens in fiction, we have a really similar situation in fiction. I'm going to put a parenthesis around the whole Terminator idea, which is the, the text right now that most perpetuates that notion of very dangerous machines or dangerous AI. And I'm putting it in parentheses because in many ways, the rules of the franchise are very set. If you don't imagine dangerous machines, you can't make the next movie. So that's set and it has to be perpetuated, um, regardless of the condition of science. But in other films, like for example, in something like Robot and Frank, which is a wonderful film, you do have a, a storyline of a, a, a man who is uh, beginning to suffer from dementia or Alzheimer's and his son gives him a small caretaking robot that starts cleaning the house, making sure he takes his medicine and all that. The representation of that robot is actually pretty realistic in terms of what we understand robots to be and to not be able to do. There's still some fictional elements. For example, the robot gets trained to be uh, a burglar, um, but um, but the, 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 the robot doesn't actually have this sudden uh, transformation into something that we could consider completely science fictional now. It is within the realm of how we imagine a home a home help robot to operate, and it doesn't suddenly have outpourings of feeling. It is still working within the parameters of what we understand to be the state of the field now. So there are some interesting things that are informing how um, how the movies even represent uh, artificial intelligence and how the movies represent AI. There, it's very it's much smaller space now to imagine purely evil robots or purely evil AI uh, because we we understand the limits of some of these technologies. I agree. I like Robot and Frank. It's a great movie. I think it's a good portrayal of a sort of, you know, more realistic portrayal of AI. Well, so so based on what's going on right now, what might we see in the very near future? Like I'm thinking in the next two to five years. Yeah. So I mean, we've brought up, I think the whole automated vehicle thing is something that a lot of people have sort of been surprised how much progress it's made over, say, the last five to 10 years. And I think that is something that I don't think it's going to be overnight. I think we're going to, we're already seeing some cars that, you know, you can put them in automated mode when you're on the freeway, but when you're in city traffic, you know, you have to turn it off. And so it's going to be a slow, steady progress. But I think that is one area that's really going to have some serious uh, impact over the next few years as automated vehicles become more and more capable. But can I ask something, Raymond, when you think about automatic vehicles, do you also think that they start requiring completely new freeways? Like, should the freeway then start becoming something more controllable, where it won't suddenly have stones in the road, and it won't mm-hmm. suddenly have people crossing where they shouldn't be crossing? Well, I think that's going to be tough, because first, it's expensive to redo all the highways. Plus, also, yeah. for some length of time, it's going to be a mix, right? They're going to be some automated vehicles on the road and some manually driven ones. And I think an AI system needs to be able to deal with that mix 
mixed sort of environment as we move more and more towards automation on the roads. I was just going to say another area that I, one of my main areas of interest is natural language processing. And I think there's a lot of things, you know, that have happened and on the horizon. You know, automated machine translation is getting quite good. Uh, answering questions, you know, if you just talk to Siri and you ask it a question and the ability to answer richer and more variety type of questions. Usually what now we can do is sort of factoid, like, you know, when was Hillary Clinton born? And I think now in the labs, there's more interesting things they can ask or more interesting questions like, you know, if Hillary is elected president, will she be the oldest president elected in the U.S.? And, and really understand that question at a deeper level and, and, uh, and answer it, which the answer happens to be no, Reagan was older. One thing I think that is, I usually tell people when they ask about artificial intelligence is, and I feel like sometimes this is helpful to talk about like where we are now. And, and uh, Kirsten and Ray should totally uh, interrupt me if I'm getting this wrong, but um, is basically talking a little bit about what we can't do or like what computers aren't actually very good at. So like um, computers are really good at multiplying huge numbers. They're really good at, um, you know, now they're getting good at looking up facts. Um, but if you show a computer or a system that has been trained a picture of a dog and you ask it, is it a dog or a cat? It struggles with that question. And so uh, there's a, there are people working on that kind of thing. So things that are sort of natural to us that, you know, you can look at an animal and say, oh yeah, that's a horse. That's a goat. So object, object recognition for is actually getting a lot better just within yeah. the last few years. That vision okay. is another topic I would have, could have mentioned that has made a lot of progress just in recent years, used mainly based on these new learning techniques called deep learning. Again, it's not perfect. It's not as good as people, but it's getting better and better all the time. As I said, it's a slow, steady progress. And now it's to the point that it actually is useful if you want to retrieve images better. You can actually, most image retrieval works at text around the image, but now we can actually analyze images, understand, recognize objects and events in video. Uh, I've been doing some work on describing video in natural language, and that, that that's getting better, and that will allow us better retrieval of video just based on that, uh, you know, English queries. And so vision is an, another area where there has been some significant progress recently. Yeah, that's so interesting. I remember a couple, maybe it was a couple of years ago now that people had this thing where they showed, showed uh, their computer a bunch of uh, videos from YouTube and they basically asked, is there a cat in this video? Uh, and the computer, I think, got it like 25% of the time and that was like a big deal. It was like very exciting. I think we're now probably, if I had to guess, I'd say 95%. Oh, wow, that's awesome. <laughs> but also the, inter the internet is 95% cat videos. <laughs> so it's a very good deal. So it's a good guess, probably. Probably cats. <laughs> now, Rose brings up a really interesting point. So what are are computers bad at? What What maybe will AI never be at, as good at as we are? Well, if I may comment on that, there is from an AI point of view, as far as I see, there's this issue of um, general in intelligence. So not just domain knowledge, not just being good in different, very specific areas, but bringing it all together, being good in basically surviving, being able to just answer lots and lots of questions, doing lots and lots of things, and many of those we are actually not not experts in. Um, people are just very good in getting away, in dealing with new situations, not in a perfect way, but in a good enough way, and building AI that is not just brilliant in certain areas, but that gets away that's good enough in many, many areas, um, this is still, you know, a very big challenge. Now, I know I like to add since most of my research is actually about robots. So um, one of the things that robots are actually not very good at is certain very dull jobs. For example, tidying up the house, doing household chores, which is, if you do surveys in any country, at the top of what people want any yes. home robot to, to do. And again, this vision has been around for many, many years. And to be honest, I would love to have such a robot because mm. I think housework is dull. Now, would any robot in the near future, I'm not even talking about today, in 10 years, 20 years' time, would it be able to be in a real home, like a British home, a small home, 
where you may have lots of things on the floor, toys, you know, children's toys, uh, you know, newspapers, books, lots of different things, carpets, little steps and so on. I mean, if I have to tidy up in the evening after the children are in bed, I can do within 10 or 15 minutes, I can, for example, tidy up our playroom just by being very, very fast and very, very efficient in just putting certain things in certain boxes that are not necessarily where they where I left them. They are now in somewhere else, but I can very quickly recognize them. Now, uh, if I envisage to have a little robot at home with a manipulator, with maybe maybe brilliant vision and pattern recognition um, abilities, but being able to do it as fast as I can, doing this very dull job, I can't really see this happening unless we have these breakthroughs. And so when it comes to home robots, I'm actually waking, waiting for a breakthrough. I agree with Kirsten on both of those issues in terms of just general intelligence. Most AI programs are usually a lot of times where people refer to them as idiot savants, right? They do one thing really, really well. You slightly stray outside their area of expertise and they sort of fall apart. And yeah, and detailed manipulation uh, with robots is also uh, extremely, extremely hard. One area that I think is getting revolutionized by robotics is uh, and, and automation solutions is biotechnology research. So I think that this is one of the ways where we are confusing ourselves by trying to create the all-around robot or the robot, as, as Kirsten was saying, that has general intelligence. But when you actually see where in the industry robots are helpful, uh, if, for example, you're doing a biotechnological application that needs thousands of little pipettes with a particular solution or or a um, molecule um, to be shaken in a particular way and moved from one area of the lab to another, a robotic application or an automated automation application can actually do that right now really well. And the, the scale at which they can do that and the repetition is actually very helpful for a biotech company that needs thousands of these uh, uh, processes to happen at the same time under very controlled conditions. So that is a great application where having people doing that would be very repetitive and, and perhaps in, inaccurate, right, or not necessarily as controllable, but having a, an, an automation solution that, you know, shakes the whole tray of thousands of pipettes and then moves them to a refrigerated area is actually a better, a better use of the, of that moment. Um, but, but again, the, the distinction here is that for the public, uh, automation, AI and robot mean a pretty similar thing and they're right. very, very different things. Um, automation usually is not embodied at all in any anthropomorphic form. It is whatever is the best solution for the particular skill. Um, and let's say, for example, if I, if I need a new job and I, uh, instruct my, um, RSS feed to send me jobs that fi fit that profile, that's an automation solution that would never be robotic. And I would never imagine it as evil in the classic um, uh, um, way. So the, the robotic solution is usually embodied. It's usually anthropomorphic and it's trying to do the task in the same way that a human would do the task. So. There are some real differences there that I think confuse people. Yeah, so I think a great example of that is there's this company called Kiva Systems that builds uh, like Amazon warehouses, and they actually move the shelves around. So they have intelligent shelves that move all around, and they get it to the person. But when it gets to the person, the person has to pick the actual item off the shelf and pack it because that sort of detailed manual manipulation robots are not that good at. So there's a solution where we're using automation in a particular way with robotics, but but it's sort of a, a human-machine hybrid. 
hybrid and we're letting the machines do part of it and, and humans the other. Well, since we're talking about the difference between automation and autonomous intelligence, can we talk a little bit about the Turing test and what that does or does not mean? Does anyone want to explain that? I mean, so every AI person sort of learns about the Turing test. So Alan Turing was one of the founders of, of computer science. I've seen a number of people might have seen the movie Imitation Game, which is about his life and his contribution to uh, the decoding of the German uh, Enigma in, uh, cryptography during World War II. But he also came up with this idea of how would we tell whether a computer is intelligent or not. And he suggested this test where if you were having a conversation with it, just like in typewritten text, he was assuming like a teletype of the day, but you might view it as texting uh, answers to questions. Could a person distinguish a human being answering a text set of text questions versus a computer answering those questions? And he claimed that if a machine was indistinguishable in terms of its ability to have a text conversation, uh, then there was no reason not to say it wasn't intelligent. So, Ray, I guess my question is, should I care about the Turing test if something can pass? it or not. Oh, yeah. I mean, I actually, like a lot of AI people, I think in the end, I really do believe that it's a it's a reasonable test. It ha- you have to have a very skeptical uh, person asking the questions that really knows about AI and can try to tease apart whether a system is just faking it or whether it really is has sort of deep intelligence and understanding. But but so I think it is an interesting test. And it's, you know, I think no one else has proposed a better test for sort of general AI. But I think we're a long way from the point that we're going to be able to have a machine pass the Turing test. So I'm not, I don't expect it to be in my lifetime uh, or, you know, maybe 50 years at the earliest, I would expect. So I think it's a long way off where we have a lot of work to do in AI before we get to that point. Well, is it is something that people have mentioned in the past and I've always found curious? Is it possible that there's already a system that would qualify as autonomous intelligence and we just haven't recognized it for what it is? I, I'd be very skeptical about that. I would say definitely not. I mean, there are these competitions that are held where they have people converse and try to do this sort of super pseudo-Turing test, but they're always constrained to talk about a particular topic. And it's not really the open-ended test that Turing uh, imagines. So I, there's nothing out there that could even come close to passing the idea that Turing, the Turing test is trying to embody. Another question would be to think about what that test would actually accomplish. We are talking about so many of these things right now at the level of application. And I think that there is a wonderful theoretical um, inspiration for research that these types of tasks and these types of tests create, but they don't necessarily um, develop into particular applications, right? So it's you create an application just in relation to the test, and in the process, you actually develop r- wonderful abilities and wonderful questions of what what the test requires. But that's something that happened also for the driverless car. There was a dr- DARPA uh, challenge for many many years to make sure that there's a car that could actually navigate a type of terrain, and these are great inspirations for engineering schools, for engineering students, for enthusiasts. And it's about asking more questions. So in my view, the Turing test is not that is not actually a destination. It doesn't do anything. Um, what it actually does is it inspires a lot of research and a lot of new questions of how you might be able to, to develop such a system. Generally, I find, I find tests or benchmarks or competitions really, really useful because you can also bring different researchers, research groups together and they have a common goal and they can evaluate the system based on some common metrics. In this sense, I find the Turing test or competitions based on that uh, really interesting. On the other hand, what I also see are the limitations because it is basically about tech-based communication, which is only a very small part of what characterizes the way we live and what, what makes us uh, human and what makes us us clever. It is It is also sometimes very difficult to to formalize the achievements. So, for example, last year, um, 
there was a system that won the Lugner Prize, which was based on the on the Turing test, and that particular uh, uh, system that won that prize um, portrayed itself as a 13-year-old Ukrainian boy, which meant that the judges also were quite forgiving in terms of typos, in terms of you know English grammar, but also limitations in the common knowledge because you would not expect a 13 year old child to 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 have great uh, you know fantastic general knowledge um and so that system won and it actually did um convince more than uh, uh, 30% of the judges that um uh, that it was a person which then some people claimed um that you know it had passed the Turing test but uh, others were very very skeptical and I would I would agree with that I mean um it is, of course, a very, uh, very clever approach to uh, not portray in a Turing test an, an adult uh, being fluent at the English language or whatever language you're testing it in, but to say, okay, let's let's look at look at children, let, let's look at people who maybe are not uh, that much that much mastering uh, the English English language, and then I think it is much more likely that you would be able to so-called pass that test. So, I mean, I would say, yes, it's really, really interesting, really, really useful, but it's also good to see the limitations and not to use it at this, as this one, uh, you know, iconic benchmark test for AI. There are many, many such tests that can be useful in different, different areas. You're listening to Science for the People, and we'll be right back to talk more about artificial intelligence after these messages. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and today we're discussing artificial intelligence. My panelists are Rose Eveleth, the host and producer of the podcast Meanwhile in the Future, Despina Kakadaki, author of Anatomy of a Robot, Literature, Cinema, and the Cultural Work of Artificial People, Raymond Mooney, director of the UT Artificial Intelligence Laboratory, and Kirsten Dotenhan, professor of artificial intelligence in the School of Computer Science at the University of Hertfordshire in the UK. Okay, so everyone has been very optimistic for the last while, and that's lovely. Um, but since we have such a diverse panel here today, I am very curious about your specific concerns about the future of AI, uh, the ones that we haven't mentioned, and specifically the ones in, in which AI is already impacting our society. Now, Ray, earlier you mentioned uh, the idea of employment. Do you want to talk right. a bit more about that? Yeah, so, but I think it is, a, it, it is a concern and also sort of increasing inequality, right, that a lot of uh, the jobs that are being taken by automation are, are ones that used to, you know, employ a certain fraction of the population and, 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 and provide jobs. And so I think we are going to have to move to a 
space where there's some pretty radical shakeup in, in, in employment and move to maybe working less hours. And, uh, and, uh, and, 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 you know, of course, there's always issues in training people more for the new jobs that become available as, as, as more dull, you know, uh, boring jobs get replaced. I think that in general, the, what has happened in the 20th century is that we see robotic and automation solutions switching labor from one category of labor to another. So when the factory gets automated, you have fewer factory workers and the labor switches to the managerial workers or it switches from blue collar to white collar. And that's, I think, the classic old-fashioned paradigm. I don't know that that continues necessarily in terms of uh, what's happening now. We see a lot of uh, uh, of uh, revolutionizing of uh, um, office processes uh, or uh, very specialized processes that used to have very high paid scientific workers and some of the working class uh, jobs are still very much related to location and very much related to dexterity. So maybe there is a robot that mows your lawn but it's actually more expensive to uh, keep up with that than it is to hire someone to do it. So for me I think that the paradox in culture is that very often we have a fetishistic relationship to the idealized robotic worker. But in the name of that, we also forget how much we can abuse and how much we can um, take for granted human workers and human labor. Um, and somehow the one conversation doesn't revolutionize the other. So I would agree with Ray that these things have to be thought of in tandem. If we are trying to revolutionize certain aspects of labor, we should actually also look at what we are doing for human workers or to human workers. My favorite example for that is the artificial soldier, which is a fantasy of artificial intelligence and science fiction for the whole century. And there are also kind of interesting work progress, uh, work in progress um, research uh, models for imagining an artificial worker, uh, an artificial soldier. Um, but what usually happens is we often abuse and take advantage of human soldiers in a way that uh, we would never do to a machine. Uh, and the fetishistic conversation about the potential artificial soldier doesn't actually help us recognize the rights and the needs of human soldiers. So for me, the robotic conversation when it comes to my specialty, which is also fiction, fiction and film and kind of cultural attitudes, um, I, I, I'm suspicious about how much it often hides. And it often hides, I think, the injustices and the insecurities of human labor in the in the world. Well, I found it interesting. We we talked about whether the research community is actually taking seriously these issues. And I read a, a Pew Research study from 2014, and they uh, they surveyed uh, people who work within this industry, and it was pretty much half of people thought that. Uh, inequality would increase due to uh, automation of these kind of jobs. But 50% thought it wouldn't have an impact. And that is troubling to me. I think here you run into to challenges with predicting how these things will be applied. Um, and, and I think that, you know, to say like, you're not, you don't think anything is going to change, it won't have an impact seems kind of, I mean, everything has an impact, things will change. Uh, whether that impact is good or bad, I think it's hard to say. Um, but I think a lot of it is, and, and this is a thing that I, I know that I struggle with, and I think that probably everyone else here does, is that um, it, so much of this depends on how these technologies are used and who uses them and for what, that it's hard to say sort of uh, across the board that like this technology will have a good impact or a bad impact. Right. Um, and that is something, I mean, at least in, in the work that I look at and sort of the podcast that I do and sort of these futures that I look at is that um, often I try to present both sides and people 
people really fixate on the one that they want. So right. they'll say, your show's really depressing or your show's too optimistic, <laughs> even though both of them are presented in each episode. Um, so I think that that's hard. I think it, those kinds of surveys are, are, are tricky, I think, in general, for me at least, is because I think that they sort of, they, they don't answer what people actually think is going to happen. They answer what people want to think is going to happen, if that makes sense. So what what do we want to happen in regards to that? In regards to the labor question? Mm-hmm. I don't know that I'm the best person to talk about that. The thing that I sort of worry about, and I'm actually really curious what Kirsten thinks about this, because um, I think the thing I think a lot about is care robots, uh, because I read a lot about artificial uh, or assistive technology and sort of the ways in which technology is helping people uh, move through the world and and sort of who might have disabilities. Um, and the thing that, that concerns me, and I think it ties into this, this question of workers and stuff like that, is that um, I, I worry, and I don't think this is a given that this will happen. Again, it depends on how the robots are built and made and implemented. But I worry that because we often talk about robots in a way for work that they're doing, like what Ray said, the dirty work. They're doing jobs that people don't want to do. They're doing jobs that are dangerous or dirty or undesirable. Um, and, and when we lump sort of care and like the emotional care and sort of physical care of elderly people and people with Alzheimer's into that category, that's when I start to get worried about sort of the cultural implications there because this, the message there is like, nobody wants to care for these old people. Exactly. Uh, and I, I think that that's the place where I worry. And I think there are totally systems and, and artificial intelligence systems that can be very helpful for people who are older or who need special care. I think that that's a, a rich area of research and obviously Kirsten can talk more about that. But I think that when it, when those get lumped in, because we're more comfortable talking about robots in the context of, oh, we're taking these, we're doing, giving jobs to these robots that nobody actually wants, right? Because that way we get away from the anxiety of like, these robots are taking our jobs. So they're taking jobs that no one really wants to do anyway. Um, which is but then when you look at like all of these care robots, I just worry. And Sarah Hendren, who's a, a really great uh, academic who, who thinks about assistive technology a lot, talks about this too. She says she's, she worries a lot about um, a, building a world sort of inadvertently where like care is actually like a dirty thing, a thing that nobody wants to do, a thing that's like, you know, whatever, we don't care about that, we'll let the robots do it. And that, that worries me. That's a place where I, like your question of like, where do you get concerned? That's a place that I get concerned. For me, the one thing that um, uh, I, re- I really react to in contemporary popular culture is the fact that out of all of the jobs that we imagine robots to do, we often don't recognize the job that they are actually doing. And in most cases, this this job is public relations. Most robotic projects are public relations projects for the universities, the research teams, or the organizations and companies that present them. And a company that makes, let's say, um, a particular type of ceramic microchip is not going to get into the New York Times front page. But if it makes a robot that rides a bicycle, then it then it does. And and these are sometimes very ancillary projects that are sidekick projects for a particular company. And they present the company in terms of the future, in terms of innovation, in terms of um, uh, a kind of a new approach to technology. But me- very often, they're not actually robotics projects. They are projects that have one main job, which is to do very good PR. And they do. And robots are great at PR. I have to put it out there. It's funny you say that there's a, a person that I just met who works uh, with IBM Watson and she her a big part of the things that she thinks about is a sort of a, a different part of that that question robots doing PR but it's more literally like robots that are the robot that you call you know when you get like your automated system where you're like calling for customer service or whatever and you talk to a machine first often and that's infuriating for many people um, because often those those sort of paths that you take through these systems like can be just like totally winding and you don't know where you're going and you just want to talk to a human sometimes 
Um, but she actually thinks about the ways in which designing those systems, you know, the ways that people sort of abuse those robots or abuse that system and kind of yell at them or whatever. And then what happens when they finally get a person after they've gone through all of this sort of like public facing robotry, like mm -hmm. then That's what, great. like, are they, are they then much more aggressive to the human that they end up talking to at the end? And like, how do people, are people more comfortable yelling at a robot than they're yelling at a human, mm -hmm. you know, all that stuff. So it's sort of interesting that you mentioned the PR thing, because I think it, there's another way of thinking about that too, with these systems, because a lot of stuff, especially with sort of language recognition, uh, you're talking about like, okay, I'm calling up and I, I want to, I need help with a thing. And you're asked to say what the thing is. And then the machine is supposed to sort of put you in the, like send you down the right path on the tree. Uh, and if it doesn't do that, it's frustrating. Even if it does do that, sometimes it's frustrating, but like there's, there's that whole other side of, of way of thinking about it too, which I think is really interesting. Well, there's another aspect to the PR angle. Like that's, that's sort of essential. Is it not in many universities? If you don't get the PR, you aren't going to get the funding. So does, does the creation of these kind of more novelty esque kind of research projects, doesn't that contribute to, I guess, retaining funding for the stuff that matters? Well, for me, I think, as, as, and I'm seeing this as an outsider, right? I'm not part of our research team. So I think that the scientists on the panel would have a much better perspective. But for me, I think the idea that robotics projects are necessary for engineering training now, I think that that's absolutely crucial. I think that we use a lot of virtual modeling in our science education and a lot of um, computer assisted modeling. And and so for people to tinker, for people to make something that has effect in the world or something that has to navigate gravity or navigate terrain, I think it is a wonderful way for new engineers to get their hands on machinery, to get their hands on a type of mechanical no knowledge. And so I think that robotics projects in universities and research teams are so, so useful. I think that what I don't like is I don't like when they have to be presented in the public on the terms of the kind of old-fashioned Gothic tradition that I was describing before, the, the robot that will feel for you or the robot that will uh, that has more that has emotions i think that those translations of what is an absolutely valuable robotics project for engineering and training and for fun um, and how that project gets translated into popular culture by reproducing very old-fashioned ideas about what robots and automation do in culture now kirsten that's something that that you said that it was a concern of yours as well is the narrative around this so do those kind of pr projects to regain funding or retain funding, do they accidentally contribute to that problematic narrative? It is certainly true that ro robotics is very, very interesting, you know, and journalists love to come, they love to see our robots and ask us what what can these robots do. Now, what I think is very important uh, uh, is how you, how, how I as a, as a scientist and my researchers, um, how we portray this narrative, but please let's not forget I'm not in control how the story that I tell will be told by the by the journalists. They will tell the story that they want to tell and regardless in how realistic I try to be and point out the limitations of the work and that, uh, I mean, often we have research prototypes, interesting research, but research prototypes. And so there is a big difference between a research prototype and a product that can be on the market in five years' time. But it is very, very easy to make this very quick leap, uh, oh, these robots in the lab are doing X, Y, Z, so in two or five years' time, they will be everywhere, there will be millions of them, and it is sometimes really, really difficult, but I think it's just part of the conversations that we need to have. Um, 
with with scientists, with uh, members of the of the media, journalists, and 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 just try to find a way in how to portray this research without uh, raising false hope. Okay, so there there are four people who really do understand the the realistic concerns uh, regarding the future of AI, um, but you guys don't run the world, and so how how can we get this out to other people? Like how can we avoid the things that people are legitimately concerned about, but also access the the very real benefits that you've been discussing today um, on, a, I guess, uh, as a broader group than just the four of you? I think it's been mentioned a couple of times, like journalists and sort of the way that journalists convey things. And I want to like, as, as a journalist to say that, yes, we do a terrible job a lot of the time. Uh, and also, I think that as uh, like, if I can tell journalists anything about covering tech, the thing that I often say is that so much of our tech coverage is this sort of techno-utopian like sort of uh, way of basically appeasing what I see as like anxiety about the world where like, you know, as I said before, like everything is scary right now. Like there's all this stuff going on. We don't really know, but like the future and tech seems to be this like space where we can help people and we can build these robots and it's really great. And there's sort of, you know, no downside. And obviously like, as we've discussed just now, there are things we need to be careful about. And I think that people will often, especially tech reporters will turn to these stories of robots. And especially if those robots are doing something that's really cool or especially if they're doing something that's really helpful. So what, like in terms of like care robots or prosthetics or things, I mean, prosthetics is not artificial intelligence, but like often that gets lumped in together as these sort of ways of, of appeasing our anxiety about the world, because look what we can do with these right. machines. Um, and I think that like just taking a step back and, and being realistic about, you know, some of these things are really cool. Some of these things are still being worked on um, and just sort of being a little bit more tempered in a lot of that coverage as a journalist is really important because Otherwise, you get sort of right all of this conversations about either people are totally sort of um, blinded by the gee whiz, wow, gold, chrome, amazing stuff, or they sort of have this anxiety that like these machines can do all these things that they can't actually do. Um, and so I think that, you know, just on, on my end, like as, as other journalists and, and people who read stuff like just being a little bit more aware of the ways that you're using these systems uh, sort of as allegories for like other things that are going on in the world and maybe thinking about that a little bit more carefully. Well, I'm wondering, is is there room for actually creating public policy around these kinds of issues? I think that there are very interesting uh, directions in legal theory about uh, how you would uh, adjudicate questions that come up with technology. I think there are new legal centers. Uh, there's a tech lab at the University of Seattle uh, Law School uh, that actually specializes in thinking about questions of automation, robotics, technology as they intersect with legal questions. There are also there's also a conference that happens every year. It's called We Robot, and very often in that conference uh, there are questions of rights, questions of who owns robotic labor, um, and some of them are theoretical questions. Right, there's questions in which you think about the law in a way that is uh, kind of uh, um, imagining conditions, and so they're not necessarily things that are up applicable to where we are now in terms of science, but it does show an interest from a lot of different professions, including the law, in thinking about in thinking about what that kind of future would require. Um, I wanted to to add to what uh, Rose was saying uh, in relation to thinking about how we can learn more about what's going on. There was a film recently, Elysium, in which you actually have a kind of an interesting representation of the robot as a type of bystander. There are these advanced robots that can do anything, and 
there is a very divided world in which the rich basically live off the earth in a colony that is really beautiful and it's a space station that has everything perfectly done and the earth has been allowed to be completely unruly and uh, barren and people are dying and people are dying of very treatable diseases but basically people have been abandoned and it looks like a disaster zone and at some point you realize that the film uh, has this great representation of where the real debate is. The real debate is between people and people and the robots are bystanders and they're just waiting for somebody to give them the command, robot, please fix this world. And the robots go ahead and fix it if somebody could just give them the command. So I think it's a very great example of where we are now, where we are beginning to realize that the debate about us versus machines is not exactly about us versus machines, that it actually is confusing us to think about it this way. And if we could bring the debate back into, it's a debate between people and between priorities or between the kinds of abilities that we want to have in terms of law, in terms of um, uh, justice, in terms of uh, fixing things, the, the robot or the technology, the automation, the, the AI, the machine could help if we could only give it that command, if we could care enough or if we could decide to give it that command. And I think if for anybody who wants to see a perfect representation of that, it is Elysium, where at some point one command change in the robot AI kind of computer system makes everybody a citizen of this new planet Earth that includes the outside colonies and it includes the destroyed planet. And the robots are like, what? People are suffering? And the robots immediately go and help. But it was just one command. Yeah, going back to your question about policy, uh, I think that that's a thing that a lot of... um like people are thinking about. And and there's a professor at the University of Washington named Ryan Kahlo who's actually proposed that there should be a federal robotics commission. And part of his argument, uh, and other people disagree, but part of his argument is that right now we have a lot of conversations going on about uh, autonomous robots, uh, about autonomous driving, so vehicles that are driven, and that's regulated by, you know, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, like other things. And then you've got drones, which are reg- regulated by a different organization. And then you have questions about, um, you know, like the the FCC and like web-based stuff and tracking people and security and like all of these things are kind of related to these systems but they're all being sort of tackled by different groups and then right. you've got you know should are killer robots like should you know these robots be able to decide and that's like a military question and he argues that like this sort of fractal nature of the way that we're talking about this sort of on a policy side is is not helpful um, and that there should be one place where people can really get together and talk about you know okay what are we okay with what are we not okay with and, and sort of get that started and he sort of argues that we should do that sooner than later because making those decisions earlier than after, as opposed to like after something terrible happens, then you have to figure out what to do is better. So there are definitely people thinking about that. And I mean, I think there are arguments for and against having another federal commission, which like of which there are many, but uh, there is this, this, it is a problem in the sense that, you know, people are having these conversations about policy, but they're not always having them together, even when topics are really interconnected. So, yeah, I think it would, uh, be great to have, you know, a more systematic uh, dis- discussion of these sorts of issues that incorporates both technology people like myself who understand the science and technology and government individuals and social scientists who can think about the, the, the effect of that technology on the, on the larger society. And so, uh, again, like I, like I think Rose had a lot of good comments there. I don't know if we need a whole new federal bureaucracy for this, but the more conversations we have along these lines, I think, I think the better both for 
you know, guiding the technology in a good direction and, 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 and you know, getting the funding for the right sorts of projects that, that help the technology uh, progress in a way that, that helps people. Yes, let me first say that Elysium was a movie with a very, very powerful narrative, and I loved it a lot. I just want to say that. Um, concerning, uh, uh, you know, who is actually making decisions on how these AI systems, these robots are being used and what is being done about them, I mean, we have these discussions in our research group quite often because we work on assistive technology. So, of course, we develop systems for people that should be used for people as tools, as assistants. But we are very, very well aware that we, the researchers, are not the ones who will make decisions how these systems are being used, where they are being used. Um, it will it will not be us. It will be people who may probably just look at the costs and benefits. And they may use uh, the systems in the future just in ways that makes it overall cheaper. Um, because with the spiraling costs of healthcare, uh, uh, not just in this country, but I think uh, basically in many countries, um, it is ultimately about cost. Um, of course, it is also about quality, quality of care. Um, it's uh, and it's also about values. But I'm sometimes really, really worried that at the end of the day, it will be about costs and benefits. And regardless of what roles um, of the robots in society the researchers are promoting or uh, what they're working towards, that at the end, other people will will use these systems in ways that we may or may not agree with. And this is, this is slightly worrying me, and I do agree that it would be great to have more conversation uh, between the researchers, on the other hand, who, who know the science and those who are making decisions and who um, would benefit from being ad- advised on the on the potential but also the limitations of this work and possible possible dangers well i very much hope that uh, you four would be part of any governing body because you've made me feel a lot more secure <laughs> thank you very much for being here today thanks for having us great thanks a lot it was a fun conversation Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. And we've linked to all of the panelists on our site at scienceforthepeople.ca. Check there for links to Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes, where you can download past episodes or subscribe to the show, and also to Patreon, where you can help support our efforts to provide quality science programming. Thanks for listening, and see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at Skeptic.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell